Welcome to the podcast for the NIH seed-funded R25 Education Grant, Discovering the Value of Imaging, administered by the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, apologies to everyone uh, the, how long it's taken me to get this podcast together uh, for this time. But uh, let's, without further ado, let's get rolling. Uh, so today we're just going to be section six. Uh, we're going to talk about radiographic notes. Uh, so where are we? Well, we've looked at electronic health records um, and uh, some applications there and imaging applications as well. And today we're going to explore the role of natural language processing, uh, specifically in regards to big data and radiology. Um, so what did we read? Uh, we read a couple papers. The first is by Pons et al., Natural Language Processing Radiology, a Systematic Review. Uh, Trivedi et al., uh, An Automatic Determination of the Need for Intravenous Contrast and Musculoskeletal MRI Examinations Using IBM Watson's Natural Language Processing Algorithm. Uh, Hassan Parr et al., uh, Predicting High Imaging Utilization Based on Initial Radiology Reports. And Selejenjin uh, Had et al., Interpretation of Mammogram and Chest Radiograph Reports Using Deep Networks uh, Plenary Results. So why do we select these papers? Well, uh, radiographic notes and natural language are such a crucial part of the daily practice of radiology. Uh, and one type of, of big data application machine learning is to sort of take advantage of these multitudes of notes available for analysis and processing. And effective note analysis allows a broad range of technologies, uh, as we're going to discuss in, in this week's paper. Um, and really, you know, the goal is to sort of remove the manual effort from labeling large amounts of data uh, and really allow a machine to, you know, run processes and run classifications to essentially sort of read the data, right, uh, to drive different applications uh, downstream. So without further ado, let's get started with the first paper. Uh, so the first paper uh, was by uh, Pons et al., Natural Language Processing Radiology, a Systematic Review. Um, and I chose this paper because it really was a very nice paper that kind of tried to take all the work in natural language processing and sort of taxonomize it into different classes. Uh, so the fab categories were diagnostic surveillance, uh, cohort building for epidemiologic studies, query-based case retrieval, quality assessment of radiologic practice, and clinical support services. So we'll talk a little briefly about each one. Um, and I also appreciate this paper because I thought it was a really nice introduction to the general idea of natural language processing uh, and what it is. So let's start with a few notes. So to start off, uh, the first question is, what is NLP? Uh, and it's really the process of converting uh, this unstructured text into structured form. For example, if I have a 70-year-old white female presenting with worsening chest pain, a lot, each of these elements can be turned into a structured form. For example, you can have the word, uh, the number 70, right, indicating the, the age of the woman. Uh, you can have the race, which, which she's white, uh, female, uh, chest pain, and also worsening chest pain as a quality of the chest pain. And so through this process, uh, NLP is, a, that's essentially what NLP does. Uh, it attempts, attempts to take that unstructured text and turn it into structured form. Um, it is not natural language understanding, which is a whole different area. Specifically in the context of radiology, natural language processing refers to this process of converting unstructured data into structured form. Uh, the second uh, comment or note to make is about the NLP pipeline uh, that's in figure one of this paper. And I'll just describe it in words. Um, essentially, to start off with, there's a feature extraction uh, uh, portion, uh, and that starts with segmentation, sort of, sort of identifying the report sections. 
then sometimes there's boundary detection where you actually try to find uh, where the sentence is split and turning the words into individual token tokens. Uh, so breaking up the words into individual pieces. Sometimes there's a normalization step where you st actually stem the words. So you may reduce words to the root forms such as smoked and smoking because S-M-O-K uh, rather than uh, have being individual words. And this is oftentimes a method used to sort of increase your sample and increase your signal, especially if words mean the same thing. Uh, some spelling correction as well as abbreviation expansion if needed. And then after that, we, sometimes you go into syntactic analysis where you look at parts of speech tagging, chunking. The next step is semantic analysis, doing concept recognition, and then negation detection, identifying where their concept is absent or present. And after this, you sort of get a collection of uh, natural language processing features. And from this, then you can apply rule-based or machine learning methods on sort of the representation of this textual data in this form after going through this pipeline. And you can do things like reported classification, information extraction, uh, and you can build those models, apply it to a test standard, and then see how well you know, it does the intended pipeline. Um, and so that's sort of the basic workflow of NLP uh, and how it works. Um, and so we'll go into some specific examples. And I think for, you know, uh, y'all as radiologists, especially if you're not deeply vested in radiology, uh, sorry, in uh, at natural language processing, it's really focused on the applications uh, and whether the application makes sense, as well as focus on the performance that these applications are getting uh, and whether you can use it for its intended purpose. Something that I really liked, and my third note about this paper, is this reference to this uh, lexicon called RadLex. Um, and this is a unified language to inform, organize, retrieve, and analyze radiographic reports. And I would encourage you, you know, when you're thinking about um, how to structure your data, if you're trying to, um, you know, put data in more structured form so that you can analyze it downstream, take advantage of the ontologies that have been formed for you. These ontologies are especially powerful because they tell you how words relate to, uh, to each other, and they also force you to use a specific terminology that refers to something very specific. So I highly recommend that you, know, you take a look at this if you haven't seen it before, um, and or even better is if you actually learned a little bit about you know, how things are annotated and, and in RADLEX and actually using this in your reports themselves, it actually makes the language pro natural language processing a little bit easier for the computer to extract these things out of it. Um, the fourth point is evaluation measures. Um, and so um, I'm sure everyone is uh, familiar with sensitivity uh, and specificity, positive value and accuracy. And the only one I really wanted to measure uh, uh, mention was F1. And what is F1? Well, F1 is a single measure that uh, measures sort of the harmonic average of precision re recall. It's a value between zero and one, uh, and it's best at one where you have perfect, perfect precision and recall. So basically 100% precision at 100% recall and worse at zero. And the F1 is nice because it sort of balances uh, precision and recall. So rather than looking at two numbers and trying to figure out, you know, which number is best, it can sort of give you a global average of both numbers, uh, considering that each one is weighted uh, individually. There are versions of F1 uh, where you can weight precision over recall or recall over precision uh, and end up getting different metrics that will weight, you know, whatever application that you're interested in, be it, you know, more sensitivity, more recall or more precision and thus more positive predictive value. 
Um, another comment to make, my fifth comment, is about um, sort of the different types of uh, applications here. Um, and this is my caveat that I'm going to make here is that, um, you know, uh, I'm certain that you know about more systems than I do. Uh, you know, as practicing radiologists, um, you know, this may be some of these systems you're actually using in your own institution. Um, so, you know, this analysis is generally incomplete. Um, and I hope that we can talk about more in the in-person session if there are more that you, that you uh, are using at your own institution. Um, so I'll just quickly go through each of the example, uh, the types and sort of some examples from each. So one type is diagnostic surveillance. Uh, and this is really the automated de detection of critical observations. Um, and the idea is that, um, you know, you can minimize delays, right, between a radiologist report and a primary clinician, uh, for example, in appendicitis. Another um, piece of work was sort of automated follow-up by extracting subsequent examinations or procedures uh, um, from the radiologic report. A second type is cohort building. So how can we use NLP processing to identify reported phenotypes? And I, there were some multiple examples. Uh, and so one example was trying to identify renal cysts. Another was trying to identify pneumonia. Uh, and as you've seen in our imaging uh, data set section, you know, there have already been some uh, applications of pneumonia on the images. Uh, and so there would be, uh, in this case, image, uh, doing natural language processing on the reports uh, to pull out um, uh, you know, this pneumonia phenotype. Uh, a third type is query-based uh, case retrieval. And this is really just using search engines uh, for radiographic findings with no specific phenotype in mind. Uh, sort of being able to search your database and you know, pull out individual uh, patients that have a specific phenotype or a specific presentation. Um, and I think there are vendors that fill this niche. Uh, and if I'm not, if I'm, I think I'm right in that at NYU, we use a system called Primordial to do this. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Another type is quality assessment or radiologic practice. So this is sort of using natural language processing to identify quality indicators of radiologic practice. And this is to drive things such as, you know, dashboarding applications, uh, trying to identify recommendation behavior, uh, wh whether a report is complete or not, uh, and sort of the communication of critical results. And finally, uh, the fifth type, uh, type is clinical support services. So there are systems that can actually, quote unquote, read the report and support decision uh, making uh, in, in, in terms of radiologist reporting. So the example, one of the examples was uh, pneumonia uh, and pushing that to an antibiotic assistance based on the presentation and pulling things from the note to say, okay, what antibiotics should this person uh, be on? Uh, and then, you know, sort of the low hanging fruit is automatic mapping of radiologic reports. Uh, to coding systems. So these are sort of clinical support services as sort of the fifth application. Uh, one comment I'll make about this paper, uh, if you didn't get a chance to read it very closely, uh, is to look at the resources section on in table two. Uh, and this is really a nice sort of collection of all types of different uh, software packages that are available for different parts of natural language processing uh, and radiology. One thing, one, uh, so the next note is, um, and the, something I actually really liked about this paper was um, sort of the operational use. Uh, and so in table, uh, let me see which one it was. Um, 
Yeah, in table three, they have, uh, it's titled Levels of Operational Use of NLP Systems for Different Application Categories in Radiology. And what you can see, it sort of have different levels. So level one is system development and validation. Operational use is not discussed. Level two is operational use discussed and anticipated but not yet realized. And level three is systems and operational use. Um, and so, you know, in different types, there's sort of a nice distribution of, of, of systems that are being developed, systems that are being discussed, uh, operational use discussed but not anticipated, not yet realized that those are actually on operational use. Um, and so it's quite a good number, actually, and I was a little bit surprised about how good the numbers were. Um, however, there are still opportunities for, you know, why some of these models aren't being used um, uh, in actual practice. Um, and I think the authors do a good job of pointing out some of the reasons, which I'll restate here because I think they're important. The first is that, you know, there may be limited evidence of efficacy. So, you know, how do we know that these are actually um uh, you know, if you incorporate this new uh, natural language processing tool that actually makes you more efficient or helps you to improve your quality of, uh, of reading. Um, Limited explanations of decision making. Um, so sometimes these machine learning models and natural language processing tools can be a bit of a black box. Uh, so you don't know, really know what's going on inside. And so without those explanations, it can be hard to trust these systems uh, with the outputs that they're producing. And finally, limited generalizability. So, you know, you may build uh, um, uh, um, a natural language processing system, system uh, using language, you know, at NYU, for example, and maybe we have some specific language for how we, you know, uh, code things or how we report things. And if I take that to some other institution, it may not work anymore because of the inherent uh, specificity of how, you know, things are done here. Um, so that was interesting uh, to sort of uh, refer to, and I, and I really uh, challenge you to think about those operational barriers uh, and some of these applications that you see, you know, in the papers here and whether those barriers, you know, if it would be useful for you, how you can overcome those barriers and whether you really believe those barriers at all. And maybe that's something we could talk about in the in-person session. Uh, the next uh, sort of and the last thing for this paper are sort of re future research needs. Uh, and I highlight this area because I think there are still lots of opportunities for uh, good natural language processing, lots of unsolved problems with natural language processing. The first is, you know, disease progression using temporal reasoning. So how can we look at radiologic report or, or any clinical text for that matter and try to understand the, the, how things progressed? right and and automatically be able to sort of build timelines right from the narrative uh, and that's a really hard problem and, and unsolved um, what are the relations between anatomic locations and findings uh, administrative coding and radiology reports uh, automating chart review in the cohort building process uh, and combining other data from the electronic health record for improved clinical diagnoses. Uh, so I highlight these uh, and it's something to think about as you think about, you know, your own data, big data applications and whether you may have um, uh, example use cases in these areas. Okay, so that wraps up uh, paper one. So let's move on to the automatic determination need for IV contrast. So why did I choose this paper? Um, so this paper is actually sent uh, by one of your colleagues, uh, and I ended up choosing it because I really wanted to have one example of using IBM Watson. And I will say that in general, uh, Watson has not been embraced by the health community uh, toward what IBM would have wanted. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, they're uh, not using any technologies that are 
particularly proprietary. Uh, I think IBM Watson is using a, a version of deep learning, uh, and they I think they bought a company uh, for that capability. Um, however, uh, you know, a lot of these methods are, uh, you know, theirs is certainly a black box, but there are methods available uh, that, you know, you'll learn about that could sort of probably get you pretty close uh, to, to performances that they're getting. Uh, so this paper is a class of clinical support services. Uh, and the goal was to automatically assign the use of IV contrast for musculoskeletal MRI protocols based upon the free text clinical uh, indication of the study. And it really demonstrates some good accuracy across multiple readers. So let me make a few comments about the paper. Uh, the first is, um, you know, there's a discussion about processing time uh, and how there's substantial uh, time for training and testing for Watson, but more of an, opt but but I really consider this more of an optimization, optimization issue than a core algorithmic issue. Uh, you know, in reality, the training time is, is really not that big a deal. And uh, users would probably gladly trade off reasonable training time to better, better performance. See, at the end of the day, these models aren't being generated in real time, uh, and they're you know sort of generated in batch mode, and say they can be done sort of you know uh, weeks in advance, or or you know, and it can even take a week right to generate these models, and uh, and the application of the models tend to be very fast. So you know, even though there's all this discussion about processing time in this paper, you know, honestly, it's just not a big deal. Um, it's fine to have models that take a long time to build and to train. Um, and, you know, as long as they're, you know, sort of fast to apply uh, to new examples. Um, uh, and the, something else that I appreciated in this paper was uh, the error analysis. So sort of going uh, individually, you know, and discussing what errors were identified and, uh, and, and how, uh, let's see here. Uh, right, and so in table three, you know, they look at some uh, different errors, and in table four, they look at uh, some different classification errors as well. And this is really valuable um, because uh, it's actually this is the kind of feedback that we really appreciate when we're building machine learning systems because they allow us to sort of understand where the system is making errors, and then we can build additional features or additional things to try to uh, solve that problem. Um, uh, another comment to make here is that they are using a cloud-based resource. Um, so this is something uh, at bluemix.net, uh, which is one of the, uh, is that name of the uh, IBM sort of deep learning uh, platform. Uh, and there'll be a, a link to this uh, on the webpage uh, where this um, podcast is published. So if you want to click on it, you can sort of read more about it. Uh, I have used uh, versions of this Bluemix service, especially for speech-to-text processing. We did some work there, and it's really cool. I mean, you can just kind of upload the stuff, and you know, magical things happen, and then you sort of get your results back. And so that's really cool. Um, however, uh, you know, one thing about this cloud service, and another comment I'm going to make is that you know this pipeline is somewhat mysterious. Uh, you know, there are no specific. Uh, details provided by IBM uh, really in this vein either. Um, however, I do believe that these can be reverse engineered fairly easily with the right know-how, uh, and especially with you know the ubiquitousness of deep learning and 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 uh, the applications and, and technologies for that. Uh, you know, it's simply probably just not that hard to replicate this work. Um, and finally, the last thing I really liked was this passive integration uh, proposal into the workflow. 
And, you know, with these natural language processing tools, you know, you really don't want to be in the face uh, of people. Uh, and you really want to just prompt people when maybe there's a disagreement between what the machine suggests uh, versus uh, what you're putting in. And I really like that approach uh, because I think, you know, you don't, yeah, you just don't want to get a lot of alerts if you don't have to. So that kind of wraps up uh, this paper. Uh, so let's move on to the next paper, uh, predicting high imaging utilization based on initial radiology reports. Uh, so why did I choose this paper? Um, I chose this paper because um, uh, it's sort of, a, you know, it's not a classification. Um, and Well, it is a classification, but it's trying to do something that has to do with the workflow, right? To really try to under, and, and I wanted to represent one workflow paper uh, in this discussion. Uh, so this class is quality assessment of radiologic practice. And so what is it? Well, so they built a model to predict how you utilize the patients with at least one abdominal CT study from the first two days of imaging reports. And they report some pretty good classification uh, results uh, with this. So some uh, comments I'll make. Number one, uh, they use a support vector machine classifier. This is a, a solid classifier for text classification, uh, but it's not generally the best. Uh, it gained a lot of prominence actually when I was uh, in graduate school for my PhD, uh, and it was one of the premier classifiers for text classification. But for, since then, it has been overtaken by uh, other uh, technologies. And support vector machines are actually a patented, a patented algorithm. Uh, and so you actually, if you end up using it uh, and publicize that you are using it in a commercial product, um, you know, someone, you will get a phone call from a company, uh, you know, asking about royalties and asking you to license their product. However, uh, you know, there are models that are not, there are algorithms that are not proprietary that can get better, if not similar performance. Uh, regularized logistic regression is one, uh, which is a version of logistic regression that's um, able to um, take into account correlations in data. Uh, and this is generally the best. And my colleagues and I actually wrote a paper five years ago sort of comparing uh, classification algorithms and found that these were the best at that time. However, that was five years ago, and now the very best text classification algorithms are actually deep learning based. Um, and so, um, yeah, so um, another comment I will make is that uh, is this idea of the document feature matrix. Uh, and so rows are represented by documents, are, are the documents, and the features are the individual uh, words themselves. So this can be what we call one, two, or three n-grams. And they have a value only if a feature actually appears in the document. So if I have a sentence like the cow jumped over the moon, uh, you'd have the cow jumped over the moon are six tokens. Uh, so the document would be one row, uh, document one, uh, six features, and all those features would be on if it was a one gram. So it would be one, uh, the cow jumped over the moon. If you had a two gram, it would be every pair. So the cow, uh, cow jumped, jumped over, over the, the moon, uh, as well as uh, one grams as well, the cow jumped over the moon. And then three grams is, is the same example uh, where you put the three together. Um, and they also do some weights, uh, weighting to these words. So it's not actually only if it appears, uh, but it's based on this notion, uh, it's called term frequency document, inverse document frequency, which is the idea that if a word appears in a lot of documents, right, it's probably not very discriminatory, and thus it should get a low weight. While highly frequent words should get uh, sort of higher weights uh, in one document. So for example, if you have a document about headaches, well, how do you know about it's about headaches? Well, if that word appears often, uh, then 
you know, it's a it's a good inference to to make that it probably is about headaches. Um, and finally, my last comment is I think this model is overfit. Uh, they use a test set to set their parameters, which is a subtle no-no. Uh, the right way to do this is to use a validation set. So you break the data set, uh, set up into three sets, a train set, a validation set, and a test set. And you use a validation set to optimize any parameters. Uh, in this case, they optimize parameters to support vector machine. And once you find the best parameter uh, using the validation set, you use that parameter on the train set, and then you build the final model and then apply that to the test set. Uh, and this is uh, really the correct way uh, to do a validation, uh, to, to set the parameters and not be overfit. Um, however, I think in this case, you know, I actually, uh, even if you did this design, I wouldn't expect the overfitting to alter results uh, significantly. Uh, however, you know, it's really hard to say without actually doing the, perform, uh, the experiment, and this is purely based on my own just stall. Um, and the other comment, and the final comment I make is that, you know, they tested only the first day of data uh, rather than two days worth of data that they found optimal. Um, so this was sort of an interesting, subtle point uh, in the paper uh, with how they actually apply this data. I do appreciate that, though, because in actual application of this model, you probably want to do it on the first day. And the idea that you get, uh, you know, able to do this classification on the first day uh, is better than having to wait two days uh, to do the same thing. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to uh, the last paper. So interpretation of mammograms and chest radiograph reports using deep neural networks. Um, so why did I choose this? Um, well, I really like this paper uh, because, um, you know, they're trying to identify discrepancies between a report uh, and a vision model for breast density and a type of chest pathology. And the story they say is that, look, you know, sometimes you'll be looking at an image and maybe you'll say the wrong words or dictate the wrong thing. And you want a system to sort of back you up, right, to catch you and say, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You know, you said the wrong breast density. Um, this paper focuses solely on the natural language processing part of the model, uh, so it does not actually address this vision of the, uh, the uh, you know, taking this vision model and trying to correlate that with how often these mistakes actually happen. Um, and yeah, and it and uh, yeah, and it demonstrates an explicit deep learning approach in natural language processing, which I appreciate as well. Um, and the class of this is clinical support services. And the results were quite compelling, uh, and they had quite good results. So some comments. Uh, so they use something called a bidirectional convolutional neural network. Uh, this is in contrast to a single convolutional neural network. Um, as we have talked a little bit about the past, these convolutional neural networks are sort of move across the image. So they'll start um, or move across a set of words. Uh, and as it moves across, it sort of you know calculates... Um, sort of a, uh, a value, right, as it moves across uh, these words. And the bi-directionalness, and I think one of the figures shows this, is that rather than reading in one direction, that sort of reads in both directions. And then there's a process that combines the data uh, captured from both of those and puts them together uh, to sort of create um, a, a you know, better classifier. Um, and so... You know, they report very good results uh, on this. And, you know, if you think about it, it probably makes a little bit of sense that this would work uh, because, you know, maybe there are portions in the, you know, front of the sentence or the front of the report and the back of the report. Uh, you know, if you put those things together, um, you know, it, it, it should be more 
you should get higher classification and better classification results from that rather than depending on, um, um, you know, uh, a, a single direction, uh, which is limited to just the size of the window of the uh, convolutional network, uh, convolution. Uh, another note is I appreciate uh, that they interrupt uh, only if necessary to the workflow, similar to the other paper. And finally, the last note I'll make is that they do a little bit of pre-processing by extracting findings and impression sections. Um, so they don't just put everything in. They actually do a little bit of sort of identifying the, the parts of the uh, paper uh, first before they put in the uh, system. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's all the papers. Uh, and I'll just make a little bit of comment about, uh, you know, why we're talking about deep learning and and, and uh, why we have this focus. And um, if we refer back to what we discussed in, in uh, the natural language processing review paper in figure one, right, we talked about this idea of segmentation, and then there's sort of word tokenization, uh, semantic analysis, syntactic analysis, semantic analysis, consummation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the traditional uh, approach to natural language processing and sort of, you know, building each individual uh, sort of you know, process as you go along. And some of the excitement about deep learning is that there's some evidence showing that, you know, you what if you just have enough data, you don't actually have to try to do all those individual steps. You can just give the algorithm the whole thing and let it learn it, what it's going to learn. It's going to be able to figure out, you know, what the relationships that it needs for whatever task it's going to do downstream. And it's very powerful, uh, sort of easy. And in some ways, it's a little bit kind of, you know, doesn't really take a ton of expertise to apply. Yes, you have to build the model. Uh, yes, you have to figure out the, uh, you know, the geography, uh, the, the architecture of the network. But this is amazing, right? That you can just give these uh, systems these words and, you know, just sentence order raw as raw data and they actually will be able to uh, produce something interesting. And that's really, really cool. So to close off, let me just answer some uh, questions uh, that were submitted uh, this time. Uh, so one is, um, uh, has there been, uh, do you think there has been uptake of NLP in institutions uh, since this radiologic review article was written? Uh, and my answer is, well, you know, I actually don't know. Uh, my guess is probably not. Uh, and the reason is, is that, um, you know, getting data, you know, uh, to have IT focus their times and resources on trying to implement some of these natural language processing tools and in institutions, you know, it's just really not on people's radar. Uh, and, you know, it would have to take some core leadership, you know, to sort of push, you know, integration or use of these uh, systems, you know, within an institution. I think one of the barriers that the uh, article alluded to was um, sort of, a lack of evidence, right, that these interventions actually make a difference. And I think that's still true here, that there's really, you know, if there isn't any evidence that this thing is going to produce an ROI or increase quality of care, um, you know, it's hard to spend the time to justify actually implementing one of these models. A second question was about the automatic determination of the need for IV contrast. And the uh, question was, what was the intention of the authors of using IBM Watson? which they acknowledge to be expensive and cloud-based in natural language processing. Uh, and I think it's they just wanted to use IBM Watson. Um, and I think, you know, IBM Watson at that time was trying to get some uh, momentum behind what they were offering. Uh, they were allowing researchers to use it and to uh, write papers on it. Uh, and, um, yeah, and so, you know, I think they used it and they wrote a paper on it. Um, 
The nice thing I will say about IBM Watson is that, you know, if you have no technical know-how, uh, sometimes it is a nice sort of service. So you can just sort of send the, the data, the textual data, you know, to the cloud or whatnot, and, and then it can do the processing uh, for you. Um, however, you know, if you do have a, a deep learning expert or machine learning experts or a natural processing expert, you could probably recreate uh, what they're doing. Um but yeah, but don't hold me to that. You know, I, I, that's pure conjecture on my part. Um, so uh, the next question was uh, for the predicting high imaging utilization paper. Uh, and so the question was, you know, is there sort of any standard method in terms of how you divide the data into training in a test set or a validation set? Um, and so the answer is um, no. Uh, usually people choose like, especially if it's a single holdout set, like 80-20, 75-25, uh, something like that. And the idea is that you usually give the training set a much larger proportion uh, because you want to give the uh, the algorithm the opportunity to learn uh, sort of more um, concepts, more things, you know, include more things in the model, right? And to extreme, if you made the training set too small, right, it wouldn't uh, potentially learn anything because there's just not enough representation or sample size in the data. So in general, I think people choose like, you know, 75%, 80%. Uh, you know, if you're doing tenderfoot cross validation, that ends up being you know 90% for training and 10% for testing. Uh, so those are sort of you know some rules of thumb. And, and when you look at papers, most people you know do 80, 20, or 70, 30, or something like that. Uh, the second question was uh, SVM framework is utilized to assess this set. Why is this uh, technique specifically chosen? And I'll just uh, say as I did last time, uh, it was chosen because. Um, you know, it is a very powerful model for text classification. Uh, there was a book written on it about it specifically for text classification. And uh, for most people, it is the go-to uh, algorithm. Um, however, you know, in benchmarks, it has been supplanted by newer approaches. Uh, and, uh, you know, if anything, I would say it's probably used because of uh, legacy reasons. Uh, and I would personally, you know, want to see sort of a more thorough uh, comparison to other methods. Uh, and finally, for the interpretation of ammogram and chesterograph reports using deep uh, neural networks, uh, the question was, is there a follow-up to this paper with the clinical utilization of the model? And the answer is, I couldn't find any. Um, I sort of Googled the authors and looked around to see if there was anything uh, uh, using this. Um, and, you know, this paper was written in 2017, so I would probably not expect that to be the case. Uh, and also, the reason is that as I said before, you know, sort of there are some clinical barriers toward uh, applying these models in actual practice. You know, the NLP part maybe not uh, might not be so difficult, but the vision part is. In other words, how do you build systems that can automatically pull uh, images out of the PAC system, send those to a deep learning system to classify, and either push those back into the PAC system or push it into a PDF so that you know you can have it side by side with the original image, um, and so. You know, I have not heard yet of someone implementing systems like this in actual uh, clinical practice. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, I, I think, I hope we will, because it is obviously one of the uh, things that has to be done, right? We have to study these things in actual clinical practice uh, before we can actually uh, use them and adopt them uh, for widespread use. And I think that is sort of, you know, the evidence that we need, right? And that's the evidence we want to gather to actually apply some of these tools in clinical practice.
So that ends our little discussion about natural language processing. Uh, and I'm hoping that I can get to the talk about radiomics a little bit uh, tomorrow and sort of post that um, uh, podcast. But thank you for bearing with me. And I really look forward to seeing all of you all this weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye.